Welcome to the Iowa Journalist Podcast Series, brought to you by the University of Iowa School of Journalism and Mass Communication. In this podcast, I will introduce you to Sung Min Kim, an alumni who currently reports on President Trump's relationship with Congress for the Washington Post. I'm so glad you could join us today. All right, well, welcome to the Iowa Journalist Podcast Series. I'm your host, Jack Martin. I'm a current student here at the School of Journalism and Mass Communications. I'm here with Sung Min Kim, a uh, reporter for the Washington Post who's covering President Trump's relationship with Congress. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Um, so you're an alumni of Iowa. Um, so like what led you from here to working on Capitol Hill for the Washington Post? There's been a lot of steps along the way. Um, obviously, I was a student here at the University of Iowa Journalism School. Uh, so went to classes here, spent all of my waking hours basically at the Daily Iowan. And I um, really love the job. I love journalism. I love telling stories. I love going out there and reporting. I love that thrill of being in a newsroom and the thrill of deadlines. So I went from uh, the DEI to uh, my first job out of college was at the Star Ledger in Newark, New Jersey, covering a lot of local news. Um, and then I decided I wanted to make my way down to D.C. Um, as soon as possible. I was mm-hmm. always very much interested in government, Washington, and uh, covering policies and things like that. So I was um, I applied for and got a, um, a fellowship at American University in D.C. Um, so I took uh, a grad degree, or I earned my grad degree there, plus um, had a chance to work at USA Today um, in their Washington bureau and got my first real taste of political reporting or consistent taste of political reporting there. From then on, I went to Politico, uh, spent eight and a half wonderful years there and spent about, you know, most of my time there, about seven years covering Congress, which is a beat that I just kind of fell into, but a beat that I really loved. It was a, it's an amazing opportunity to be right in front of our nation's elected officials and literally, you know, accosting them in the hallways and asking them questions uh, day after day. And now I combine my kind of expertise and background in congressional reporting with covering President Trump, the White House, the administration for the Washington Post. So I focus a lot on Trump's uh, relationship or lack thereof with Mm -hmm. Capitol Hill. Basically any story, almost any story that has equal elements of Trump and Congress, that's kind of my wheelhouse. And I write a lot about those issues. What's it kind of like working for such a historical newspaper like the Washington Post? Are you ever like there sometimes just kind of hit you like this like this is a paper that's been involved in like so many big stories and all the time it's really overwhelming I mean ever since I was you know growing up in Iowa and I was in high school and especially in college my dream always was to work for the Washington Post oh, wow. it was always uh, it was never never actually really any other newspaper I just you know obviously inspired by the stories of Woodward and Bernstein but also as someone who was always interested in covering um, you know Washington and politics and government which came out of which actually got interested in in high school, I, when I took you know social studies courses and AP government courses, that, those were the types of topics that interested me more. And I was also a political science double major here. Um, so obviously, the Washington Post was kind of a um, kind of a dream destination location for me. And when I covered the courts um, for the Daily Iowan, I found the legal system and the judicial system really interesting. So when I was 19, I decided that my dream dream career was to be the Supreme Court reporter for the Washington Post. Um, so I'm I guess halfway there I don't know if that's still technically my dream beat but um, but it was really but 
alongside that, to be one of our lead reporters covering the confirmation fight over Brett Kavanaugh last year for the Washington Post, Post plus having a sit-down interview with Justice Neil Gorsuch um, about wow. a month ago. Um, it was uh, it was my first interview with a sitting Supreme Court justice, so that was really exciting for me. Um, that's Those are some amazing opportunities I've been able to have. And yeah, the, the, the Post has always kind of been my destination paper, so whenever I walk to the office and you see the our, our tall building and there's the big sign that says the Washington Post, you just kind of like look at it and like take a breather and kind of take it all in, and mm-hmm. it's an amazing opportunity. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, so... I mean, that was your dream job when you were able to get there. So what are some tips that you would have for current students who want to cover politics and certain things like that and how they can get to where you know you are? So for especially for students at Iowa, take advantage of the fact that you are in Iowa. I mean, this is the center of the political universe every four years. The campaigning starts essentially after the last caucus or the, the previous caucus and the previous presidential cycle ends. I remember when I was a student at the Daily Iowa and, you know, first as a reporter and as, you know, as a news editor um, at the DI, we had so many candidates come that we couldn't even keep track. Like, we couldn't cover all of them because there were just so many and so few reporters. And, you know, uh, there are other journalism schools um, that are that are great programs, but they aren't physically in Iowa. They're not, they don't have the, they, do, they don't have people coming in with like, a, either on campus or a short drive nearby. I mean, those are amazing opportunities to, you know, talk to presidential candidates and you know when especially when there's a giant presidential uh, candidate field like there is right now and there will be obviously in subsequent um, presidential cycles they want to talk to Iowans that includes Iowa voters that includes Iowa journalists especially at places like the Daily Iowan so take advantage of that take advantage of the fact that you are 18 19 20 years old and can talk and can get up close and personal and talk to people who are running for president and and that you can really that like that experience will set you up ahead of so many other students who don't get that similar opportunity and to show future employers you know places like Politico and at the Washington Post that hey my interest in politics goes way back to college when I interviewed you know Elizabeth Warren about her and I asked her questions about her education policy that's really impressive Mm -hmm. to uh, future employers you know prospective editors um, at these big organizations yeah I was a senior in high school during the 2016 election so I wasn't here for any of that but being here because in the last probably month and a half two months i know bernie sanders has been here Mm -hmm. pete Buttigieg has been here i think kamala harris was here earlier the week or Mm -hmm. last week and then cory booker was here so it's been kind of crazy to see all these candidates coming in i know andrew yang does something with the des moines register like they've had a lot of stuff so it's just been like pretty like crazy to see how like involved Iowa is and all this stuff because I remember hearing about it how like how big these caucuses are but like being in the middle of it you, it doesn't hit you until you see no, it right you, like, yeah. never would, like, cause when I was coming here I'd never like think like oh I was like a big political hotspot like yeah. this is how you like get off to the races mm-hmm. and then when you started the Daily Iowa you were I read an article that they posted a couple months ago um, you were there when John Kerry went, got second in John Edwards, yeah. John Edwards. So that, that and, and that's an, another great example of getting this experience um, that you know basically veteran professional political reporters get, but that but that it's an opportunity that I had when I was literally 18 years old. It was the 2004 caucuses, and um, I wasn't covering the politics beat, but we had to send a big contingent out to Des Moines for the caucuses. So I was I was assigned to be at John Edwards' 
Caucasus uh, victory party. He got a surprise second finish in the 2004 Caucasus, and I was in the and I was in the filing center and in all these places that had been set up in Des Moines to handle hundreds and hundreds of political reporters, literally from all over the world. I remember like I saw placards for reporters from like Japan, and I was like, "What are people from Japan doing here?" But that, but that's it's really like Iowa is really at the center of the political universe, and I don't know if I don't know of many other 18 years old 18 year olds who got to like go to a caucus night event as a reporter right and that's an amazing i mean i had no idea what i was doing i like still at that point like i was still trying to get a hang of how the caucuses worked mm-hmm. um but it was an incredible opportunity that's awesome so i mean you said yesterday in your keynote that president trump can really make news at 6 30 in the morning when he wakes up so what's like a typical work day for you like there really is no typical work day obviously um our so much of our day and so much of what we do is dictated by what the president of the united states does and is doing or what we want to look into in in terms of what he's doing um you know some days i am you know i split my time um, between i spent i still spend most of my days on capitol hill um i you know if i'm on the hill i am you know in addition you know i get in the i get into our desk at the, my desk at the capitol i kind of make a quick to-do list of all the targets that i have for the day um the story tips i want to pursue the sources i want to check in with um and, and then i just kind of start like walking the hallways like finding senators to talk to um interviewing them for stories i am pursuing so uh, and then you know get back to my desk around like three or four o'clock and then like pull notes together write articles you know sometimes if it's breaking news i have to file some few paragraphs from my phone always in touch with my editors about the stories that i'm producing or or that i'm putting together on other days i'm traveling i um traveling with the president of the United States so that means you know I have to go to Andrews Air Force Base around like whenever they want us to come by and then we get on Air Force One we travel um, to places all over the country sometimes even all over the world um, and I'm there to just kind of you know shout questions at him mm-hmm. when we get opportunities or and, and especially like write down what he is doing and you know and and write stories off that um, you know, sometimes it's a day in the office um, when C- Capitol Hill is not in session and I'm not traveling and I don't have to be at the White House. And so it's just basically on the phone constantly um, tracking down tips or uh, working on bigger enterprise pieces. So um, there's a lot of like different normal days. You know, mm-hmm. it depends on like what my das- task is for that week or for that day. Yeah, flying on Air Force One seems like kind of a wild work day. It is very, very cool. And it's just very overwhelming to see this beautiful baby blue jet that's mm-hmm. just been such an iconic kind of um, image of presidencies and to be able to go on it. I mean, Air Force One's pretty cool. Like, they have all those M&Ms. Um, and it's just very, you know, no one yells at you to put your phone in airplane mode <laughs> when you're when you're on. And it really is an amazing experience. Um, it just, every time I get to go on, which is not, if it's not all the time, but it's like regular enough Mm -hmm. um it's always just kind of like a very overwhelming feeling it's an opportunity that very few people and very few journalists get um and it's a really um amazing experience yeah i was gonna ask how many journalists get the chance to go on like how many will they take at a certain time so that's a really good question and it's something that i learned only really recently when i started on the white house beat last year so when the president of the united states travel 
travels, there is always a pool of journalists traveling with him. And there, the idea is that, obviously, with the President of the United States, you need journalists with him at all times. And that, um, but not all, not like all hundreds of White House reporters, photographers, TV producers, they, like, just, it's just not feasible to mm-hmm. be with him at all times. So there's a group of 13, um, 13 journalists who travel with him. And um, it, there's a rotation. So, you know, sometimes it's the post turn to be in the pool. Sometimes it's not. And um, what our job to do is we are the we are the eyes and ears for the rest of the press corps. So if, you know, Trump can, for example, if if, if we're under the wing of Air Force One and we're the and we're about to take off to go to Minneapolis or someplace. But Trump comes and talks to us to uh, the pool and says, I am um, I am have authorizing sanctions against Turkey. That's news. Right. right. So but we are the only 13 people who heard it. So it is our responsibility our job my responsibility to send that to the rest of the hundreds of thousands in the white house press corps who get these press lists that news like you know president trump just said at andrews air force base that he is doing x so so tv shows can use it on their shows that you could write stories off it so of the group of 13 there are three wire reporters three wire reporters two print four photographers um, three TV people, so two cameramen and one producer, and one radio person. So we're all kind of pooling for our respective mediums, and th- so 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 these people travel with him at any given moment. So I was in the group of thirteen when he went to Minneapolis a couple weeks ago for his first uh, campaign rally after the impeachment inquiry began. I was in the group of thirteen when he went to the DMZ and stepped into North Korea um, and became oh, wow. and uh, became the first sitting president to step foot on North Korean soil. We did not go to North Korea, to be clear. I was we were, going, yeah. Yeah, so we, we were safely in the in the South Korean side of the DMZ. But were you, like, still there? Did you see him? Like, Yeah, I saw him. Like, he was as, like, he was as close. Um, I mean, I, mean he wa- I saw him walk over. He was probably, like... I don't know, like twenty or thirty feet when I, when it, when he because when, when he was walking to North Korea, clearly he was like walking away from us. But yeah, I saw it right before my very eyes, and I got pretty. And when Kim Jong Un and Trump came back to the South Korean side of the DMZ, um, he was actually pretty close to us. I have like pretty interesting pictures wow. um, of being very close to the North Korean leader and Trump, and it was just a, an amazing experience. That's crazy. Yeah. Just like most people, <laughs> I feel like you guys are probably like such like a select few Americans that will ever get the chance to be that close to Mm -hmm. Kim Jong-un. That's insane. Um, So when you say that you guys are the eyes and the ears of the press pool, how do you guys go about, or I guess how has it changed ever since news has kind of been so dominant on social media? Because I feel during Obama's second term, I wasn't really like on social media because I was in middle school most of the time and then early high school and then when Trump came in the 2016 election, I feel like it really just changed like the landscape of how news is covered. I feel like social media has become like such like a big part of it. Like Twitter has just been like so dominated by it. Do you guys have do you think notice like more utilization of social media to get that stuff out? Definitely. I mean, this is a president that communicates through Twitter primarily. There's so many times when I mean, const- like so many times, meaning like every day, he makes news through his Twitter account. Mm-hmm. Twitter account. And to be fair, like not everything he says is news. Like if he's retweeting tweeting something that isn't you know as relevant to something then we, we don't we don't write up every tweet clearly right 
but a lot of things that he says are very much news and you, you know I haven't directly covered previous administrations but I th think I can say pretty confidently that you know if the Bush White House or the Obama White House wanted to make an announcement it was you know it was planned out in advance there's a lot of strategy a lot of planning you know they briefed reporters on an embargoed basis they wouldn't just like spring things on reporters right. but um, but a lot of times like you are just kind of we all have the Trump's Twitter notifications set to our phones yeah, and yeah it's it, it buzzes a lot um, sure. obviously but for example you know last weekend you know he or last week the White House had made a very controversial decision to hold the group of seven summit at his personal resort right. in Doral Florida a lot of criticism not just from Democrats but from Republicans about the clear appearance of conflict of interest and right. that he could profit from having this no matter what the administration said got a lot of pushback and then um and then with literally no warning you know saturday night 10 30 p.m a few a couple days later after the announcement you know like my phone buzzes and it says tweet and i was like what did he tweet and he's like i am no longer holding mm -hmm. the g7 in Doral." and i was like wow that's big news that just uh -huh. comes out of nowhere and it's saturday night and good thing i'm not our duty reporter this weekend <laughs> um so it's just you have to you know if you want to be someone who covers the day-to-day -day administration you 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 kind of have to be on twitter that's the way that he makes announcements that's the way that he makes news uh, so obviously it makes us a little bit more addicted to our phones which i don't completely and which i'm not completely happy about yeah. but it definitely has it definitely drives a lot of like what we do and how we consume the news um and things like that it's will there be times when like you think you're ready to wrap up the work day and then all of a sudden you look at your phone and trump is just like dropping sanctions on whoever and you're like oh my god do this now i mean there was a time um on the i mean on the weekends it, it, i mean that happens constantly you know like usually during the weekdays a lot of the stuff happens during the work hours or a little later so it's a little bit easier to manage but there have been times you know for example i um there was one saturday that i had worked um a couple of months ago where I um, I actually was our I was our the designated pool person for um, his in-town travels. So basically, he wanted it was a Saturday. It was a beautiful weather, so he was going to go golfing at his um, golf course golf course in Northern Virginia. Um, and again, no matter where he travels, whether it's in town or you know across the world, there is that pool of reporters who travels with him. So I was in that pool, I, and it wasn't much more than like at 9:30 in the morning we left. The the White House on on way to an unknown destination mm -hmm. and at like 10 15 we arrive at Trump National Golf Course in Sterling Virginia and then you kind of hold or you wait in a nearby restaurant for five hours until he's done golfing so I, I and then he was done golfing we go back home um, I thought my Saturday was done I was actually I, a, a good friend of mine was moving to New York so her farewell drinks were that night mm -hmm. and then I you know my husband and I were getting ready to uh, to go meet my friend and and then my phone buzzes, and it's the, it's Trump saying that um, I what I had invited leaders of the Taliban <laughs> to Camp David, oh, yeah. but because um, but because of this bombing that had killed and uh, killed a U.S. soldier, I'm calling off that meeting, and I was like. 
you had invited the Taliban yeah. to Camp Day. Like that was like that was. I remember I, that. That was like. I was like, what? That came out of nowhere. I mean, maybe like people who had been covering that issue more closely and had been covering the potential peace talks with Afghanistan more closely may have seen that coming, but I did not see it coming. Mm. Um, and I was since I was our on-call reporter, I you know kind of scrapped what we were about to do that night and um, and got to writing the story right away on my kitchen table at seven o'clock at night. Um, so yeah, so there are a lot of times when you're yeah. when your days are upended with no warning and it happens a lot with any politics beat, with any Washington beat, any presidential beat, but for particularly for this president, it just kind of can definitely come yeah. out of nowhere. I, mean, I remember I did like a triple take on that yeah. tweet. <laughs> Um, so have you ever spoken directly to President Trump? I have been in situations, yeah, where we've asked questions and um, he has answered. And I'm not, um, I'm, I'm not the, I'm not the type of reporter who's like great at aggressively screaming questions. Uh-huh. Like my interview style is a little bit different, but definitely in time, like I've never had a sit down interview mm-hmm. with him. Um, I, other my other colleagues at the Post have, um, but you know, so but when we're especially when we're in that traveling pool with him, so the circle of journalists are smaller or there have been times where I've been on Air Force One and he comes to the back of the cabin on Air Force One and we ask him questions. It's a little bit more of like a controlled environment obviously and a little less crazy and hectic. Um, There have been times like that where we've spoken um, and where like he he may answer a question, he may not answer a question and and things like that. Um, But he definitely, the one thing I will say is that he does take more direct questions from the media than perhaps his predecessors but it's not in of it's very often not in a like a structured or controlled environment right. because he doesn't have a lot of formal press conferences where he takes um, you know questions on any given topic from you know a dozen two dozen reporters but almost every day he has a um, you know he has a meeting in the Oval Office let's say with a foreign leader and the press corps brought in there and but then we could be in the Oval Office for 30 40 50 50 minutes because he's taking questions on news of all matters of the day from reporters who are just kind of like screaming over each other and trying to yell their question. Whenever he leaves on Marine One from the White House to go to Andrews Air Force Base and the helicopter is whirring so you can't hear anything, um, the, but, but but he almost he very often comes out and asks uh, and and answers questions from the press as he's trying to get, as he leaves to go get on the helicopter, which on the one hand is it's is an opportunity to ask pre- a, que- a question of the president of the United States, but because of on the other hand because of how crazy the environment is how um, how you can't you can't hear a lot of things there are, there's a lot of like pushing and shoving, um, and because it's really loud he could like not hear your question right. or. or or whatnot. Um, so, so that so that makes it a little bit harder. So, how you like go about framing stories around him, considering he's constantly in the headlines and he's the most controversial president we've had in recent memory, and especially with this impeachment inquiry. Like, how do you, especially with the relationship with Congress, like how do you, you know, like go about like reporting and stuff like that. I think um, in terms of framing the story, um, there we've had to. I, I, there's been a there's, there's been some adjustments that um, news organizations have had to do, in particularly dealing with this president, and also and in particularly covering. Um, what he says because I think it's it's not unfair to say that this president um, has a looser relationship with the truth and with facts than 
previous presidents have. I mean, we have a really great, robust fact-checking team at the Washington Post that have fact-checked his statements, and they are in the thousands upon thousands. I think we've hit 10,000 false claims wow. or misleading statements since his presidency. The, this president has a history of spreading conspiracy theories, like absolutely baseless conspiracy theories. So it's been a I think it has been a challenge for journalists to kind of adapt to a president where oftentimes like you can't write the lead of your story as the president of the United States said this on Monday because what he said could be not true or unfair or completely misleading. Um, So I think that there's there's been several, I mean, we're we're kind of tested on that every day and how to accurately convey to readers what's going on when you can't always rely on the president of the United States to say something that is accurate because of his track record with the truth. So that's been one challenge, I think, in terms of framing and writing the story in the most accurate way possible. But I think ultimately, I mean, as a as a um, as a response to your larger question, or as a larger response to your question, I think it's just basically we can only we can only like be as fair and accurate as possible. So what we can right. do is, you know, like collect, you know, interview as many people as possible to figure out what's going on at the White House, or you know, interview as many people as possible to get the most accurate assessment of how Republicans feel on an issue or Democrats feel or what the strategy is for each party and just kind of present that information in the most clear way possible at the end of any day. And that's kind of like, well, well, the only thing we can really do. Mm -hmm. During like, I guess if he says something controversial or a time like this with the inquiry, is it harder to get answers, like direct answers out of congressmen and representatives because there's like so much heightened things people really don't know exactly what's going on all the time and things are changing like every minute it seems like that's a really good question and it definitely is the case for republicans on on capitol hill um because you're right things are changing all the time and what i've been told by people is that you know there's you know there's it's probably a fair assumption for now to think that even if the president gets impeached by the house he may not get convicted and thrown out of office by the Senate, considering he has a lot of allies in the Senate. The Senate is controlled by his own party. But at the end of the day, and this is kind of a broader thing to keep in mind as a reporter, too, just doing your job every day, we don't know what we don't know. We can't right. make assumptions. We just have to basically be reporters, wait for the, the dig for the facts. You know, if you're a member of Congress, you have to wait for the facts to come out from this impeachment inquiry. So it's been hard to get answers or, or or um, or get to get lawmakers to respond to a lot of our questions. Um, it's been like that often in the Trump presidency. Uh, Republicans, while they like the fact that you have a president who will sign Republican policies into law, whether it's lower tax rates or or an administration that rolls back regulations, um, they you know like they do have problems with his conduct, his rhetoric, his personality, and when you press them on it, it's a question that they don't like to answer. That they don't want to answer you know you can say like oh i haven't seen the tweet so i can't comment but then you Mm -hmm. can like pull up the tweet on your phone saying like well senator well here's the tweet can you read it and react to it i've had to do that several times um and especially now, um, it's uh, there are there are a lot of Republican members, particularly in the Senate, who don't necessarily want to engage um, on the impeachment question. Um, 
and and they have like a pretty easy out saying like well if there's a trial i'm going to be a juror in that trial so i don't want to say a lot at this moment which has kind of been the standard line for a lot of republican members um particularly in the senate but i mean but the resistance um from particularly from republicans resistance against answering questions about Trump has been pretty common because this has been a very um, you know they've been challenged by this president you know in terms of what he says and a lot of what he has said they have said is are, are not defensible um, so it's re- you've, you've seen them you've seen elected Republican officials really uh, kind of um, kind of grapple with that challenge in the Trump era do you see that changing as this inquiry goes on at all do you think they're gonna get even more secretive um i don't know i mean some people have been pretty like some senators have been really good about being tight-lipped throughout the whole process you know others may feel compelled to be more critical or to speak out the more they see things that are alarming in the testimonies that come out it kind of varies on the senator you know if the senator is up for re-election next year and he or she has a political imperative to be as closely allied with the president as possible because they, you know, they're up for election in a conservative state, and or they're trying to avoid a primary challenge, or whatnot. Then you might see much more forceful defense of of the president and deriding the Democrats' investigation. It kind of really depends on the senator um, and what uh, what what is best for. Uh, like a like what he or she thinks is best to do you know process wise and for the integrity of the process, but also just their political imperatives too. Um. So. With Trump being in office for at least another year to five more years, um, and it's already the media landscape's already seemed to change and be even crazier. How do you see the future of media? Do you think it's going to be more of a balance of like newspapers and like I mean, what else? Do I have? Yeah, and like television, but like social media is like I feel like starting to take over. Do you think it's going to be more of a digital takeover going forward? It's definitely digital, and it's been like that for some time. I mean, I think that the, I mean you've seen print newspapers. Um, you've seen print newspapers kind of be be eradicated more and more. I mean, there are so many publications that have gone that used to be very major, robust, daily, regional news organizations that have gone down to maybe publishing three days a week or getting rid of their print editions altogether. I mean, printing is expensive. Like, it requires a lot of resources. The paper is expensive. Running those big printing presses, printing mills are expensive. Um, and online is, is much more efficient. Um, there, I mean, the funding challenge for newspapers is is something that is really worries me. Um, and I, this is, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, process and a and a solution that has to be solved that is far above my pay grade but it um it really is a challenge you know i look at um you know the the places like the new york times and the washington post we're doing fine i mean obviously our subscriptions have gone up we are doing well like we are able to hire you know all of our news organizations like we're able to hire really good reporters we haven't had to do layoffs but um but there are so many other great news organizations across the country that are struggling and what really worries me to with um, with with the decline of local journalism is just the decline of watchdogs locally. I mean, I walk around Capitol Hill and there are so many reporters around. There are you know there and it brightens my heart to see that. Like mm-hmm. I love seeing all those journalists on on Capitol Hill pressing senators, press you know keeping members of Congress accountable. But at the same time, I just kind of get wistful and think to myself, why can't we take some of these 
these reporters and put them right. in Trenton or Albany or Des Moines and keep uh, keep those elected officials accountable because you know state lawmakers, governors, they need to they need watchdogs too. They need reporters keeping them in check. It's when. Um, it's one of the most uh, things that one of the things that I remember the most about visiting professionals who came to Iowa when I was in school. Um, there were a pair of investigative reporters from the LA Times who had won countless awards for their investiga- investigative work. I believe they won Pulitzers, um, and it was really inspiring to talk to them. And I remember I don't know if it was me who asked or someone else um, who asked. And uh, we asked, like, well, like all the corruption that you've exposed. They were from the they, they were from the LA Times. So, like, all this corruption that you exposed in Los Angeles. Those are amazing stories. Um, I mean, but you know, we're here in like little tiny Iowa City, or like we're in other we're in smaller comparable towns. Like, do you think there are similar scandals or similar things going on here? And I will never forget what the their answer was. They're like, because like there are fewer journalists in these smaller towns. There's probably more corruption Mm -hmm. going on because there aren't journalists watching them and keeping them in check you know that's i you know that was what like 15 years ago or whatever i was in school i still remember those words from those from those visiting professionals to iowa um so that's what kind of worries me and i hope that there are different funding mechanisms funding models that can keep uh newspapers and news organizations alive in you know places not in new york or dc but it's it's a it's clearly a challenge yeah well i think that's a good place to end it um so yeah thanks for coming on Mm -hmm. i really appreciate taking the time Mm -hmm. thanks for having me you've reached the end of another episode of the iowa journalist podcast thanks for tuning in if you want to find out more about the journalism school connect with us at our website at clas.uiowa.edu backslash sjmc you can find out more about our faculty, our alumni, our current students. And if you'd like the podcast and want to subscribe, you can do that over on iTunes or Google Play. Make sure to leave a rating or a comment. Uh, the feedback's really appreciated. See you next week.